You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Big news from Kelowna, BC. Mountain bikers of the Central Okanagan have signed a partnership agreement with Recreation Sites and Trails BC for the Gallard Trail Network. Listeners of this show will know Jay Darby, the club's president and previous guest and friend of the podcast. Over the next month, he and MTB Co. will be coming up with a work plan, and in Jay's words, safety and signage are initial priorities. Here's what Jay had to say. Now that we've secured a signed partnership agreement with the province, our first step is the development of an approved work plan. Under the agreement, network safety will take first priority. Initial works will include the installation of signage, the removal of unsafe stunts, and a reduction in the number of points where trails intersect the road. In addition, plans for years 1 and 2 include the development of formal parking areas and installation of other trailhead infrastructure and facilities. Long-term goals are numerous, but key aspects of our proposed build-out are the development of climbing trails, the creation of a BC Cup-level race course, and construction of intermediate and beginner flow trails to meet the needs of the cycling community. We are enthusiastic to be working with the province and look forward to involving the entire mountain bike community in creating what we hope will become the premier regional trail network for gravity-oriented mountain biking. On behalf of the Board of Directors, I would like to thank all of our community supporters and acknowledge our past directors and the local trail builders who laid the foundation for this momentous undertaking. Thanks, Jay, and congratulations to MTB Co. and all involved. The last four episodes, we've been focusing on diversity, inclusivity, and why this is so important. Just last week, Outside Magazine posted an article called The Outdoor Industry Has Too Many White Dudes. The article was written by Joe Jackson, and he shares the story of five people that are diversifying the outdoors. I think it's great that the outdoor industry is taking this issue seriously, and I hope that mountain biking can do the same. If you haven't listened to episodes four, five, six, and seven, I'd highly recommend going back and doing so. A big question that came out of these conversations was how can mountain biking become more diverse when it exists in a greater world of systemic social injustices? How can outdoor recreation and mountain biking specifically take on systemic racism and sexism? But I think we're looking at things from the wrong direction. How else can we take on systemic problems than from the grassroots level and within our own communities? I think the phrase think global, act local rings truer than ever. With the political changes coming out of the United States over the last little while, we seem to be entering a world that allows discrimination, hate, and isolation. Mountain biking, and more importantly, its community, needs to be a safe space for all people. Today we'll discuss how we can bring trails to the people, how trail associations can work with land managers to develop urban trails, and why this is so valuable. I'm your host, Brent Hillier. Welcome to Episode 8 of Frontlines. Over the last few episodes, we've identified the value of urban trails. Urban trails are defined as trails that are within a municipal boundary of a village, town, or city. My next guest is Joshua Rebinock. He's the dirt boss for the Cuyuna Lakes Mountain Bike Crew, the local trail association in central Minnesota. He's also the author and presenter of Nobbies in the Neighborhood, 
focusing on urban mountain biking. One quick note, you might feel like we're in a jungle. It's just Joshua's birds in the background. They're just as excited as us about urban trails. Hi, Joshua. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be on the show. So uh, Eric McKeegan, one of my uh, my previous guests in an episode, uh, mentioned the, the Cayuna trails, and, uh, and those are your local trails. Uh, how did those trails come to be? Well, um, they're in an abandoned iron mine. So uh, in the 20th century, from about early 1900s up until the 1970s, they were active iron mines. Uh, when the iron mining sort of stopped, the companies all went bankrupt and the land was just left as it was. Um, in the 80s, uh, they had a commission to try to figure out what to do with that land. Uh, two women by the name of Barb Grove and Lori Perpich put forward the idea of making it into a park. And at that time, it had just kind of become an area for dumping and hooliganism. And so the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources took it over in the 90s when they began their public outreach for what to do with this new proposed park. Mountain biking was mentioned. However, the money wasn't there to do much with it until the late uh, 2000s. So construction was uh, started in 2010 and finished up that summer and then it officially opened in 2011. That's a great repurpose of, of some land. Yes. And it's, it you know, the open pits have filled in with water. So those are like trout lakes and everything else. And then all the overburden and the stuff that they couldn't use in the mine, they dumped in these big tailing piles, you know, that are vertically 100, 125 foot high. And so that is where our trails actually are, is traveling up and down those uh, various tailing piles. And of course, since the mining stopped in the 70s, uh, nature came in and there's just been an amazing growth of trees and other vegetation that now make it a very beautiful area. Yeah. And just to kind of paint the picture for the, the listener, it's actually quite close to the community. Like this isn't a mine that's out uh, away from the town. Like this, this little area, this park is actually quite close to the town. Yes. In fact, both the towns that directly uh, border what's called the Cayenne Country State Recreation Area, 50% of the town area is actually the mines. So the distance from the trails to the center of town, uh, depending on which road you take in, is between a quarter to a half mile. Hmm. So uh, depending where you're at in the system, if you want to get to the center of either one of those towns, uh, that's the distance you would have to travel from the edge of the trail to the center. Wow. Amazing. So how did Nobby's in the neighborhood, uh, how did that project start? It actually kind of started because of Cayuna. So Cayuna and another trail in Florida were the first two Imba ride centers, uh, one and two. We were number two. And when they were describing Cayuna, they kept describing it as being in the cities of Ironton and Crosby. Now, combined, the uh, population of those two towns is about 2,700 people. So they're not huge cities, but they are technically cities. So we were getting a lot of emails from people from across the country that were saying, look, I'm in this city or this town. How did you guys get 25 miles of trail inside your town? 
And at first, I was forwarding those messages down to Minneapolis to the Minnesota Off-Road Cyclists, which is the club down there, because they have about 100 miles of trails inside the municipalities of uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul metro area. And uh, they were doing a good job, but we got a lot of people that were then writing us back and going, yeah, they, they helped me, but I want to know, like, how do I go from I want to do it to now I'm in front of the city council? That's the part I'm not getting help on. And I just started collecting stuff and putting it into text files and sending it off to those people. And over time, the text file got so unwieldy that it became a PowerPoint thing because then I could put text in there. I could put notes at the bottom. I could put pictures, links. And that evolved over time into the what is now the Nobbies in the Neighborhood presentation, which if you do the full boilerplate, we don't make any uh, changes to it to fit your situation. It's about an hour and a half. It's two 45-minute uh, presentations. The first one is just on existing stuff. Like here's what else is in the world in the United States. The second part is, okay, so we go through where stuff is in the United States. How do you take what other people have learned and apply it to your city or town or region to do these trails? And where have you taken this presentation? Done a lot through Skype. Uh, this year, I had a chance to take it into uh, Portland, Oregon, and uh, present it last March. They're undergoing the off-road cycling master planning sort of process right now. Portland has had a, let's call it, troubled past with the attempts to get mountain biking in the Portland sort of metro area. And they're attempting to rectify that with their uh, current process, which, of course, is the off-road cycling master plan. Yeah, I think a lot of people are watching Portland right now to kind of to see what's, what's happening and what's going to evolve out of that. What types of properties work best for urban trails? Well, the, the, the simple answer is this, is that there's lots of properties that work. And what often happens is, is this. Somebody takes a look at a property and they go, oh, well, I want to put a pump track here. I want to put trails here. And that's actually, I don't want to say it's backwards, but the better way to do it is to say, I have a property. What is the property able to handle? I'll, I'll see this a lot of times. People will have like a 20-acre parcel that, you know, it's been abandoned or whatever in the town. And they think, oh, this would be a great place for, let's say, a, a pump track, for instance. But it's 100% wooded. So if you try to go in there to clear cut an area for a pump track, you're going to encounter more opposition, more issues, more problems than you would be if you said, you know, this is all wooded. Maybe we should do a smaller trail system of a mile, mile and a half, two miles, and have it just be a little neighborhood uh, trail. And then over here on a bigger piece of property or on a different piece of property, we do a different use. Um, the ones to really look at for, that most towns have lots of is undeveloped green space, which usually is tax forfeited or has gone through some process in the past to retain it maybe uh, as buffer between housing developments. Obviously, natural spaces that are designated as such work. Uh, green spaces, even developed parks where they've gone in there and they've put in grass and playgrounds and all that, 
often have large areas that are undeveloped because they don't work for any developed use. It's too hilly for a baseball diamond or it's uh, too steep to put playground in. And those kind of areas can actually work and you can put uh, trails in places like that. And so you can actually fit urban mountain biking into a lot of really interesting spaces. And, and what types of trails work best? So let's kind of start with the single track because that's probably going to be the easiest to work with. For single track, what you see sort of in the United States is a ratio of about 1 to 10 to 1 to 20. So what do I mean by that? The ratio is one mile of trail to 10 acres or one mile trail to 20 acres. If you can imagine kind of a square box and in that is contained that one mile of trail. In metric, that works out to be one to two to one to four. So it'd be one kilometer to two hectares or one kilometer to four hectares. And with that ratio, you can start figuring out, okay, how much trail goes here and here and here. These types of trails are almost always what they call stack loop design. So instead of being a point to point trail, they kind of make a horseshoe shape, right? You leave the parking lot or the area that the trailhead's at. You go around through the woods or through uh, some particular features and you come back to that point. If there's a second loop on there, that second loop comes off the first loop. So you would go some distance down the first loop. You would turn onto the second loop and you would end up back on the first loop. That's a stack loop system. It's recommended by EMBA. When you get into smaller pieces of property, so we're talking... 10 acres or less. These can be post-industrial. They can be developed parks. That's where you can really get into pump tracks, jump tracks, cyclocross courses. If you have trails or locations, I should say, that are long and narrow, many cities are built near rivers and they often retain parts of the riverway as being flood zone or green space. You can put in adventure courses, which are kind of like, a, imagine a cyclocross course, except you strung it all out into a big, long line. Here in Minnesota, that's how I would describe what's called the river bottoms down in Bloomington, Minnesota. It's essentially a point-to-point trail. It's wide in some spots, single track in some spots. It's not terribly technical because it's in a river. And so you can do it on a pretty aggressive cyclocross bike if you're good enough or a mountain bike. And so those kind of uh, uses tend to want to have long, thin corridors versus a more squarish one. Mentioning th- those types of, of areas next to rivers, there's there's two examples that, that pop into my mind. One is Edmonton, uh, which done, has done a fantastic job of, of, uh, of working with the city. The, the community there has, has really developed the trail network. And the other one that, that comes to mind is is the Don Valley Parkway out in uh, in Toronto, Ontario, and and that one is uh, an illegal area, and uh, and the city is is trying to work with with the mountain bike community, and, and the mountain bike community is, is at the same time too trying to work with with the city to develop those trails and, and legalize them. Why are legal trails so important? So it's important to have legal trails for three reasons, and they kind of fit three different groups of people. So the first one is the community itself. And that can be the community of mountain bikers, but it also is the larger community as a whole that includes people that aren't mountain bikers. So if you have legal trails, 
You're going to have more people that's going to find them. You're going to have that guy who has the Walmart bike in his garage. The trails go in a couple blocks away at whatever park. And he's going to take that bike down, go ride those trails. He's going to enjoy it. And now he's going to be enjoying mountain biking also. And the community members that don't mountain bike, what they're going to see is, is that those trails have people on them that are maybe a little different than what they think of as being mountain bikers. People that, you know, aren't just a sort of Red Bull athlete, you know, throw myself off a cliff guy, but actually their dentist, their lawyer, their accountant, whatever. In other words, they're going to see their neighbors mountain biking. The second thing is sort of the management. End. So from a land manager, from a city perspective, when something is illegal, you can't manage it. You can't control it. Uh, here in this country in the 20s, of course, was prohibition on alcohol. And what happened? Well, the only people that were interested in being involved in distributing alcohol and fulfilling a need were the people who were criminals or at least didn't care about authority. And the results, of course, were negative. Well, the same thing can happen with mountain biking. If you've made it illegal, if there's no legal outlet for it, the only people that are going to be riding the trails, the only people who are going to be building these trails, are largely people who aren't going to care about authority. And if it goes on long enough, that can develop into a prohibition syndrome where everybody kind of believes the authority is wrong in some way. So legal trails help with the management. You can look at places like Marin, California, that have, you know, every... Every week some story about some issue with mountain biking. Well, the reason is because it's been banned there since 1984, and it's just developed all these years into a, a large prohibition syndrome. The third one is kind of uh, more directed to the entire mountain biking community, uh, both the people in a local uh, sort of trail association level, but also the people who are professionals, and that is... A PR perspective, public relations. So last year I was at a, a fat biking summit. There was a person that was talking about Michigan and the fact that in Michigan they were having a problem with a lot of people on fat bikes going onto snowmobile trails. Um, I don't know why you'd want to do that given the speed that snowmobilers go, but they were. And there was an individual there who represented the interests of the state when it came to land management and snowmobiles, and he said, uh, regarding fat biking, either you're all damn liars or you're not. And what he meant was that he was getting a lot of requests to open up trails for fat bikes, uh, to, to get permission to, uh, you know, build and maintain fat bike trails, groom, etc. And the same people who are making those arguments are the same people who are out riding trails that they shouldn't be, snowmobile trails, cross-country trails, and the like. So his point was, look, if you want if you want to have uh, these trails be legal, if you want a fat bike, then you can't come in my office and tell me that, you know, you are mature about this, that you're a growing community, that you're just there to serve people's needs, and that you want to have a voice in everything walk out of the office and go do things that upset the user base. 
And I think that sort of lesson can be applied to us as mountain bikers. Either we're liars or we're not. And if you're asking a city council or a state board or a county board to give you permission to build trails, it's awfully hard to sit there and say, well, we're, we're this mature group that is going to raise this money, we're going to manage these trails, and we're going to build these trails, and we're going to maintain these trails, and, and, and we're just like any other user group that you guys have dealt with. In fact, we may be better than some, and at the same time, be writing things illegally and be building trails on land that you don't have permission to build trails on. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the mountain biking community needs to decide. You know, are we going to put our big boy pants on and be blunt about it and say, illegal riding is wrong, illegal trail building is wrong, no ifs, ands, or buts, or are we not? Are we going to be liars, or are we not? President uh, John F. Kennedy, when talking about sort of the idea of going to the moon, said, well, we want to do it not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Well, maybe as mountain bikers, we need to kind of say to ourselves, we want to ride and build trails legally, not because it gets us more trails, but because it's the right thing to do. You define mountain biking as being a passive activity. What do you mean by that? If you look at cities that have mountain biking within their legal uses for parks, they almost always, there are a few exceptions, but they almost always define mountain biking as passive use. So let's define passive use. Some people define passive use like this. I'm hiking. I expend X amount of calories an hour. You're mountain biking. You expend Y amount of calories an hour. And somewhere in between those two is this line that you've gone over and now you're active use and I'm passive use. That's not what active and passive uses are talking about. What they're talking about is what alterations have to be performed in support of that use. So let's, let's use a little illustration here. If you wanted to build a ball field and you had a piece of ground, what are you going to have to do? Well, you're going to do some construction, right? You're going to clear the land of vegetation, maybe level it. You're going to bring in materials. You're going to have to bring in invasive species, which is what grass is that is used in the fields. And you do all that. When you're done, what happens at that point? Well, you have to actively maintain it, right? You have to mow the grass. Hmm. You have to put uh, chemicals on there to get the grass to grow, you know, fertilizer. Then you have to put on chemicals to kill the weeds. You're going to have to come in there and just continually make alterations to the land, actively make alterations to support that use. And that could be for a baseball diamond, for a playground, the list goes on. A passive use might have that some initial construction to it, like building a trail. You're going to move dirt, you're going to remove some vegetation, that's going to happen. But once it's all done, the amount of activity required to maintain it at that level is essentially zero. It's not completely zero, you have to do maintenance, but it's passive to whatever else is going on in the property. On top of that, Active uses almost tend to be exclusive. You build a baseball diamond, for instance. You're not going to have soccer happening on that. You're not going to have bird watching happen on that. You're not going to have equestrians on it. If you have a trail, it could have a person that's hiking, a person that's mountain biking, a person that's watching birds, maybe an equestrian if it can handle that, or a trail runner or a dog walker. 
all at the same time. And they can all use that trail system on an equal basis. And so that's why mountain biking is a passive use, because it uses the same infrastructure that hiking does. It has about the same impacts to the environment. And in the long term, it requires the same amount of maintenance. And you can hike and mountain bike on the same trails and do so successfully. How can potential opposition be averted? So here in Minnesota, when we do our trails, we roll our own. In other words, we pay for our own. So my local club wanted to do an expansion into county land. And we raised in the course of the year $670,000. So that money was going to be for us to build the trails. The land that we wanted to build it in already had snowmobile trails and it already had ATV trails and it was used by hunters. Uh, it was used by the community. Before we have gone to the county, we went to those user groups first and said, here's what we have in mind. What issues do you guys see? Can you help us avoid those issues? Is there anything that we can do to kind of lay whatever fears you have? And it, there was a dialogue back and forth. And the result was that we made some changes to our trail layout. We made some changes to where we had crossings and the like and how we did crossings. And... In the end, they wrote letters of recommendation, all those groups, the ATV group, the snowmobile group, of uh, the various hunting groups that use those lands, saying, yeah, we want these trails here. Because we had approached them first, we'd worked with them, and even if they hadn't given us that sort of letters of recommendation, we would at least know what their arguments were going to be in opposition, and we could craft a message around that. And I would say that's probably a positive example. Go and, and talk to the people, the neighborhood associations, the environmental groups, and say, look, we, we want to do this. We're planning to do this. How can we work with you to, to sort of minimize your issues? You may not be able to get very far. You may be able to get really far. But either way, you're going to know what their feelings are about it. You're going to know what their arguments are against it. And then you can sort of craft your message, craft your proposal to fit that reality. So I was in Portland last March to talk about urban cycling and the Portland off-road cycling master planning process has been going on for some time regarding it. There in Portland there are groups that are anti-mountain biking and one of those groups is headed up by two individuals who have been anti-mountain biking for 15 years and they are very concerned with Forest Park and what happens at Forest Park and they have hit upon this argument all the time through this off-road cycling master plan that you can't have hiking trails and mountain biking trails be the same trail because hikers will be injured or killed that's their argument and the funny thing is is I don't know if they know it or not they kind of have hit on something there you just can't throw everybody on trails with no direction and, and have things go smoothly are people going to get killed? No, but it's going to be a little bit of a, a learning curve for everybody involved. But the the city, through the process, has actually avoided discussing. I don't know why. I don't know if they're uh, not discussing it because they feel like it's going to be confrontational. I don't know if they're not discussing it because they feel like, well, we'll, we'll take care of that down the road when we go to build trails. Or what the reason is. But left alone, it will metastasize and will prevent the adding of trails to Forest Park. The correct thing to do there would be to go, look, there's this concern. Let's talk about it. Let, let's actually take that concern. Let's, let's go through and let's get the answer for it. And look to other places that could have that answer. So, for instance, here in uh, Minnesota, 
We lead the United States in the number of urban trail miles. Uh, we know how to do this. We've been putting hikers and mountain bikers on what Portland would consider insanely narrow trails uh, for 15 years. We know how to do it. Other places are doing it too. So Portland could look at those places and go, look, you know, uh, here's here's how Min Minnesota does it. You know, the X, Y, Z, this is how they do it. And we, Portland, could do that too. This is how we address that concern. So the lesson here is, look, if you have people who are coming to you with concerns, don't blow them off. Use them as a launching pad to come up with how you're going to solve it. So if you have a situation where somebody's worried about erosion, go find a place that has a regime, a method of, of management that is all about erosion. And, and maybe far and away what the city would require, but would work. And say, look, we want to do this because it's the best. It comes from this place. And, and that'll solve your question about erosion. If it's one about safety, you know, how do we get these groups on the trails and get them to work together? Let's look at this place. They've been doing it for 10, 15 years. They, or they have a really good track record. Let's use that. And so don't take people's concerns and blow them off. Use them to further and make your proposal better. In addition to that, what questions should a local trail association ask itself before embarking on developing urban trails? To this day, I still get a lot of like emails from people who are just, hey, we're wanting to do this. Uh, can we get some information? And I don't have a problem giving the information that I have out free. I'm not here to make money on this. But I always have three questions that I always ask and a fourth one I sometimes ask them. And they're kind of self-reflection questions. And, and they're this. Number one, are you, you being the trail association, are you willing to go through whatever the process the city has? and to do it at their pace. Most people don't realize that the reason it takes a long time for a city to go from, yeah, we think this is a good idea, or we're going to let you guys apply to do this, to actually doing it is that they have a whole bunch of internal sort of goalposts they have to go past. And what I've seen happen, I can name two of them off the top of my head, where the city said, okay, this is new to us. We're going to take it slow, but fill out this paperwork and we'll start the process. And the local trail association fill out the paperwork, they go home, and they fire up a Weebly or a Squarespace page, and they create this beautiful page with maps and everything, and it's the, you know, little green frog natural area bike trails coming soon, and it freaks out the neighbors, and it makes the city mad at them because, of course, the city has three months of internal stuff they did do before they even let anybody know that they are thinking about this, and it ends up either creating a lot of bad blood or it makes the city think, well, we don't want to do this because we're always going to have to deal with this problem of them jumping ahead of our process. So that's number one. Are you willing to go at the pace the city's going to require of you? Number two, and this is kind of one that starts to get into really hardcore self-reflection, what is the reputation that mountain biking and mountain biking clubs have in my area? Among mountain bikers, you can have a club that has a really good reputation, but the people outside the club, maybe they don't have the best reputation. And when you go to propose this, you're going to have to deal with the fallout, maybe of a club that's halfway across the state because they have such a bad reputation. So you have to understand that and maybe kind of do a little forward work and say, hey, we, we know that there's been issues with this or 
or, or this place doesn't do so hot with this particular thing. Here's how we're going to do to make sure that doesn't happen. Number three, how is my city with new ideas? This one you're not going to know off the top of your head. There's no way to know it. You're going to have to go to the city council meetings or park board meetings or whoever is in your city that would take care of new uh, ideas or new uses within your park. And you have to go to a couple of their meetings and go, oh, well, you know, Bob on the council, he's kind of a curmudgeon. You know, he's going to have a lot of questions. We should think about that. Uh, Susie on the board, uh, she seems to be really concerned about this particular aspect of the users. We should think about addressing that. And the fourth one is the one that's kind of optional, depending on where people are contacting me from. And that is this. Does your club have the humility? Does your city have the humility to learn from people who maybe are outside your bubble? And here's why I always ask that one. Right now in the United States, the really awesome, interesting mountain biking sort of methods and process are not coming from the coasts. They're coming from places that are basically the Louisiana Purchase. Places like Fentonville and Fayetteville, Arkansas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, believe it or not, Nebraska, Missouri, Knoxville, Tennessee. So, you know, if somebody is writing me and they're from Burbank, California, the question is, would you or your city be willing to take the lessons from one of those places and apply it to your city? If there has to be some sort of Skype interview back and forth, is it, are you, as a member of your trail association, are you going to be like, oh my goodness, this guy is talking to me and he has a Pioneer Seed baseball cap and a Wrangler flannel shirt on while he's talking to me? That, that can be a problem, believe it or not. And so you have to ask yourself, can I, can I listen to this person if they're from a different part of the country? Can I understand whatever problems or issues they had to deal with, I'm probably having to deal with too. And can their solutions work for me? I think that's a great question to ask. And I, I think, you know, speaking on, on bubbles, we, we, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of bubbles all over the globe and, and all over North America and, and across the United States. And, and at the end of the day, the vast majority of us are, are building or, or maintaining trails on land that that's not ours. And, uh, and we come across the same issues and we have the same challenges. So it's important to, to learn from each other. Yeah. And I think, I think it's what I'm seeing is with the, the Ember World Summit at Bentonville this year, I think some eyes got open, quite frankly. So if you were at Bentonville, what you noticed was if somebody said, oh, Arkansas, I'm, Let's be honest. I'm thinking a lot of people probably have a certain sort of mental image of what people in Arkansas are like. <laughs> and whether or not they'd ever admit it in public, it's probably not the most positive. And it's certainly not accurate. So here was the Emba Summit in Bentonville. And there were people from California who probably are thinking, oh, why are they, we going to Arkansas? You know, it's just going to be a bunch of hilljacks there. And they get there and oh my goodness, this is really awesome mountain biking. And it's totally different than what I'm used to in wherever I'm from. And so I was so glad to see Emma do Bentonville as a place. I hope I hope next year it's at 
Copper Harbor or Duluth or wherever. I mean, I would like to see more than go to more places like that and really show the world that you don't have to have a mountain out your back door to have good mountain biking. Well, Joshua, I want to thank you for your time and, and uh, sitting down and, and having this discussion with me. I think it's uh, some valuable information that a lot of people are going to be interested in. Okay, you have a good night. You too. In order for the mountain bike community to better reflect the greater and more diverse communities surrounding it, we need to allow easy access for all. And urban trails are key for this. Instead of driving hundreds of kilometers, having easy basic trails and facilities within urban environments will help grow the sport, reaching people who may not have otherwise had the opportunity to try mountain biking or even know much about the sport itself. Another great way for mountain biking to grow and become more inclusive is through programs at the youth level. Next episode, my guest will be Rocky Blondin. He's a director with the Fraser Valley Mountain Bike Association and the Mission Area Representative. And we'll be speaking about the youth mountain bike program that they're running out there and some of the cool things that they're doing to get kids who may not come from mountain bike families on bikes. Once again, this is the opportunity for you, the listener, to get involved. Connect through social media. You can find me at Brensky Bikeski on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to get a hold of Joshua Rebinock, then please send me an email and I'll get you connected. You can reach me at brent at bikeski.ca. If you'd like your voice to be included, then please send me an audio file and we might just get you into a future episode. On that note, don't worry, Steve. I didn't get your voicemail into this episode. It's not because it wasn't great. In fact, the opposite. It's a topic of discussion that deserves an entire episode, so stay tuned for that. Big thanks to Lee Rosevere for the song Tech Toys. And thanks to my lovely wife, Jennifer Pride, who is now officially the producer of Frontlines. It's about time. Uh, Your notes are greatly appreciated and your gentle delivery of constructive criticism is always welcome. If you haven't already, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. And while you're at it, leave us a review. It's how others find us. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy trails.